In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Bila woke up that morning, that morning as the first rays of sun slipped through the seams of their tent. He sat up and looked at his sleeping family and then gazed around at their tent loaded with stuff. But this wasn't their stuff. This was Egyptian stuff. His mother's new gold earrings caught his eye and suddenly he became very uncomfortable. He liked to see his mom dressed up. It wasn't that. It was just that it reminded him of how everything was so strange. Like this tent, this wilderness, this bread. Everything just wasn't right. It made him feel like this wasn't his life. Like he wasn't himself. He tried to brush these uncomfortable thoughts aside. Let me think. Just three months ago, I was in the greenest, richest place on earth, among the greatest people, the greatest cities, the greatest river. But then he remembered the tears of his mother and how his father was always too tired to play. Bila felt torn in two and confused. Let me just think straight. What was it like before Moshe showed up? For one thing, I hardly ever heard anything about our ancient ancestors, except when the elders would tell their stories. But they were always full of stories. Every slave dreams of freedom. Ah, Moshe, Moshe, this wandering Hebrew, he, he, he comes out of nowhere without introduction. And he says that the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have met with him. And that this God is our God, and we're his people. And this God has heard the cries of our suffering, and he's going to bring us out of Egypt. When the elders ask Moshe what this God's name is, he responds mysteriously. He will be who he will be. He has sent me, and he will bring you out of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. Bela's stomach growled and his mouth watered. Frustration welled up in him again. He tried to collect his thoughts, but everything was a blur. The stench of dead frogs, Pharaoh's army strewn on the shore of the sea, water from a rock, bread from heaven, light from a cloud at night, Everything backwards, upside down, and strange. Then it struck him, today was the third day. For the last two days, everyone in camp had been washing themselves in their clothes in preparation while Moshe built a barrier around the foot of the mountain. Yes, today, Yahweh will speak with us. Bila's thoughts were cut short. His parents were up. They were dressing in a fever. The whole camp of Israel was hurrying from their tents. The sun was gone. Thunder rattled his bones. Lightning flashed in his eyes. And the sound of a mighty trumpet pierced his ears. We're going to die. The lightning flashed again, and he glimpsed Moshe beyond the barrier. Then Moshe spoke to Yahweh, 
and everything got worse. The top of the mountain seemed to burst into flames, sending up smoke to the heavens like a great furnace. And then that sound, we're going to die. Bela tried to cover his ears and run, but the trembling hand of his father caught him. He saw it in his father's eyes. We're going to die. Then that sound, like the rushing of many waters. I, Yahweh, am your God. I am a jealous God who punishes the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But show love to thousands who love me and keep my commands. Bela's parents swore that day to keep all of Yahweh's commandments. But in spite of his miraculous deliverance and his continuous displays of glory, they rejected God and did not believe in his promise to bring them into that land flowing with milk and honey. Bela's parents died in the wilderness a few short years later. As Bela looked on his parents' faces for the last time, that unsettling feeling welled up again. And those questions which had been nagging him for several years now completely consumed him. Anger, awe, fear, hope, and love all fought within him. Who is this strange God? And what does he want with us? Not only did Bela's parents die in the wilderness, but because of their unbelief, Bela's generation was forced to wander in that wilderness for another 40 years until his parents' entire unbelieving generation perished. Bela is a fictitious character, but everything in that story is true. You can read it in Exodus 1 to 20. What we get from those chapters is that while in Egypt, Israel had apparently forgotten who their God was. And as a result, they forgot who they were. And when God set about reminding them, he didn't do so by coddling them, but by testing them with great tests. Israel had been building the grandeur of Egypt for as many as 16 generations. Surely they knew just how mighty of a nation they served. Many times they had seen Pharaoh return from foreign conquest with loads of treasure and captives in tow. And then Moses shows up and tells the 13th or 14th generation of slaves that now all of a sudden the mightiest nation on earth is going to let them go free. And not only that, but they're going to take all the wealth of Egypt with them when they do. That is surely a great test. Now they're out in the wilderness. God tells them to camp in front of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army shows up. They've got a lot of people and stuff, but they are not an army. So they cry out to God in fear. God says, don't be afraid. Just stand where you are and watch how your God will fight for you. That is a great test. 
Now on the other side of the sea, after coming out of the breadbasket of the world, watered by the fertile Nile, they go days without food or water. They complain bitterly. And while God does miraculously provide its bread and water, day in and day out, three meals a day, for years. For the younger generations, it may have been over 40 years. That is a great test. And if all that wasn't enough, in that point of weakness, God comes to them in a terrifying display and speaks to them directly. Well, they thought they were going to die at the hands of Pharaoh's army and then from starvation and dehydration. But when God speaks, they're sure. And during all that suffering, God dangles the promise of future rest. Amid bread and water, he promises milk and honey. That is a great test. So what are we to think of a God who takes a people out of slavery, calls them his own children, and then treats them like that? His name is Jealous, and he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons the third and fourth generation of those who hate him, but shows love to a thousand who love him and keep his commands. Does that God sound strange to you? Is this the God that we know? Is this our God? The God who is love? The apparent incongruities between God's revelation of himself here and in the New Testament have left many to believe that this is indeed a strange God and not the God that we know. But listen to what Yahweh tells Moses to say to the Israelites just two days before he terrifies them from Sinai. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings to myself, now, if you obey me completely and keep my covenant, out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Though all the earth is mine, you will be for me royal priests and holy nation. Now, that God sounds familiar. That God we know. As I was wrestling with these questions myself, I decided to go out for a walk to clear my head a little bit. I've been in Madison a couple weeks and I hadn't really explored the UW campus yet, so I walked along the lake and up Bascom Hill. And there in the, in the face of all those old buildings and all that history, my mind was just set at ease. I, I felt like it was one of those things where I, I, I felt like I'd been there before, like I knew the place. And it set my mind soaring on all these kinds of things. You know, the glory of human achievement and the, the noble task of striving after knowledge and grasping after those things that are just outside your reach. But it was a toasty day, and as I got to the top of the hill, I was sweating out my dress clothes a little bit. So I decided to look for some shade. As I sat down and pulled out my notebook, the restlessness that had sent me out of the office caught back up with me again. 
But this time it brought a new awareness with it. God was not the stranger. I am. I didn't recognize God because I was too busy looking at all these earthly things down here. I didn't recognize God because Egypt had crept back into my heart. Don't get me wrong. It's not, it's not a sin to be inspired by Bascom Hill. But for me at that time, it revealed a sinful pattern in my heart. Like, what is, what is my first impulse when I've had a long day? What's the first thought that crosses my mind when a relationship goes sour? Where's the first place I turn when I have some uncertainty about my finances? Is my heart facing upwards? Or is it looking down here? I found that my heart was so quickly and easily moved by these things because I was looking for something down here to satisfy it. That yearning in my heart was grasping after creation and not creator. The more fiercely we hold on to Egypt, the longer God keeps us in the wilderness and the more fiercely he tests us. When sin deceives the jealous God cannot let it remain. His trials are meant to draw our eyes away from the world and its false promises to his true ones. Away from the world and its passing pleasures to the ones that are eternal, hidden with him. God tests us so he can bless us. God is not the problem. Our sin is. So, we're still frustrated. We're still angry. We're unsettled. But all those things, God turns to a blessing. For in those frustrations, we're shown our sin. And our eyes are turned once more to the jealous God and how tangibly he judges sin. But more importantly, they're turned to the solution. In Jesus, we have the solution. He is the true servant of God, the true Israel. For he too passed through the waters of baptism and was declared to be the very Son of God. He too was sent out in the wilderness to be tested. But where we sin, he's sinless. He is the royal priest, the Holy One of God who fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements and so received every blessing and entered God's promised rest. In Him we live. Just as the sons are punished for the sins of the fathers, just as in Adam all died, so in Christ all were made alive. And in Him we live. And if our lives in Christ feel a little different to us, if sometimes we feel like we don't 
recognize ourselves or our lives, it's because we no longer live. It's Christ who lives in us. This does not mean, however, that we're done with suffering. For insofar as we still suffer, we're not yet as we ought to be, as we will be. For our suffering is the Father's jealous love at work. He's chastising us as his children. Our Father has given us the entire world, but if it gets between us, he'll take it. He will not let anything stand between you and him. So he sends us trials. He sends us trials to show us who we are. We are his chosen people. And since he has set us apart as his royal priests, as a holy nation, he labors tirelessly to strip us of ourselves in the world and remake us in the image of his Son. And if we bear the image of him who is one with the Father, who is merciful to sinners, who is compassionate and love the world with a selfless love, if we bear that image, we will be as he is and do as he did. This will be our royal declaration to the world. We will keep his commandments. This will be our priestly service. We'll serve one another. That is our love for God. And he blesses it for generations without number. And what of all that? What kind of a God looks at broken sinners, says they are mine, and then occupies himself so intensely with their purification? He is a strange God indeed, and we are his peculiar possession. Amen.